0: The 1919 World Series is, perhaps, the most famous World Series of all. Unfortunately, for all the wrong reasons. The Black Sox, Shoeless Joe Jackson, Buck Weaver, Eddie Seacott, Kid Gleason. Yes, the Sox lost the series and were found guilty by Baseball Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis for throwing the series. Sure, most baseball fans know the story, but what about the Reds? They were a terrific team. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about one of the great stars from the 1919 Cincinnati Reds, Ed Roush. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes. You know, it's about this time every year when I start rolling out show after show about baseball. This is supposed to be when spring training wraps up and the regular season gets underway. Of course, however, that's not the case this year, as we all sit and wait for the COVID-19 virus to run its course so we can all get back to business and the crack of the bat and smacking of the mitts can be heard in ballparks everywhere. And please don't think for one second that I'm making light of any of this. This is a horrible situation, and I wish everyone the best and healthiest of luck. Nonetheless, I hope today's podcast about Hall of Famer Ed Roush offers you a little break from what's going on. Roush was a simply terrific ball player. His career batting average of 323 over the course of 17 years in the majors and two years in the Federal League earned him induction into Cooperstown in 1962. Roush was known for his marvelous defense, his bat, and his speed. He also had a reputation as a shrewd negotiator when it came to signing contracts. Remember, back when Roush starred, baseball players signed one-year contracts, and Roush always held out to the last second before he signed so he could possibly make more money and skip spring training. We're going to get into all of this, his career, and a lot more with Ed's granddaughter and the author of the book, Red Legs and Black Sox, Susan Dellinger, who also happens to hold a Ph.D., Before we get to today's show, some exciting news, at least for me. Sports Forgotten Heroes can now be heard on iHeartRadio. That's a big step. Please let your friends and family know that. They can now listen there in addition to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, really anywhere podcasts are available, you can listen to Sports Forgotten Heroes. As always, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Follow SFH on Twitter at SportsFHeroes, Instagram, and look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. And don't forget, you can always check out Sports Forgotten Heroes on the web, SportsFH.com. That's where there's more information about the stars I talk about and every guest who has appeared. And you can always send me a note from SportsFH as well. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. So, Ed Roush, He broke into the majors with the Chicago White Sox in 1913 and really didn't do too well just getting one hit and ten at-bats. He was sent down to the minors, Lincoln to be exact, and he did not enjoy his time there and he left. A year later, midway through the season, Ed signed with the Indianapolis Hoosiers of the Federal League and went on to hit 325 in 166 at bats. In 1915, Ed hit 298 for Newark. Indianapolis moved east. He had 28 stolen bases and 551 at-bats. Then the Federal League folded and Ed restarted his Major League career with the New York Giants. And here to talk with us about Ed's career is his granddaughter and author Susan Dellinger. and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks for joining me. Well, Warren, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So, let's start with this. What are your memories of your grandfather? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I guess when it comes to, to baseball, your 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 favorite memory, perhaps. I mean, what do you remember most about Ed Roush?
1: Oh, he was a jokester. He loved to uh, make light and have people laugh. And he'd, he'd always, he'd say things like, oh, fizzle. <laughs> and he, he'd dance around the room and he'd always try to, he never tried to get serious into a conversation.
0: <laughs> well, we're going to get serious into our conversation. Okay. unless Unless he was unless he was at the bar in
1: Oakland city and he'd had so many beers that they trapped him. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like he had a lot of fun. He used to say, you got to drink six to begin with. The first six don't taste very good. Then you go on.
0: (laughs) Well, well, let's, let's, let's get into this. Um, Couple other questions before we dive deep into into um, Ed's career, but obviously one of the biggest events of his life was the nineteen nineteen World Series, and we're going to cover some of that later on in today's podcast. But okay. what I wanted to ask you was how he talked about the nineteen nineteen series. Did he ever express any bitterness? Did he ever feel cheated? Or, you know, did he just approach it as the Reds won and that's that? No, he
1: was furious about it. Mm -hmm. He was really mad about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he he would say many times we would have won anyway.
0: Mm Hmm. there, there There are people that think that.
1: And he w- well, yeah, there should be. <laughs> I mean, it was the best team the Reds ever fielded. Yeah, the six eighty six average. I guess so. Sure. So, I mean, statistically, they were fabulous, and they were fabulous. They had the deepest uh, pitching staff. They were incredible. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, they had they had Grandad. They had Heine um, Groh. They had Jake Daubert. They had golly incredible people.
0: The nineteen nineteen Reds were a terrific team. They went ninety-six and forty four, a winning percentage of six eighty six. Ivy Wingo was the catcher. Jake Daubert played first. Maury Rath played second. The shortstop was Larry Kauf, and the third baseman was Heine Grow, and he hit three ten in nineteen nineteen. In addition to Ed, in the outfield were Wally Rag and Billy Zitzman. The pitching staff was led by Slim Sally, who went twenty one and seven with a two point zero six ERA. Dutch Ruther went nineteen and six with a one point eight two ERA, and Hod Eller was nineteen and nine with a two point three nine ERA. Ray Fisher was fourteen and five, and Jimmy Ring went ten and nine. Dolph Luque, whom, by the way, is featured in Sports Forgotten Heroes episode number 54, was the number one man out of the pen. He went 10-3 with a 2.63 ERA and three saves. Incidentally, Luque appeared in a total of 30 games that season, nine as a starter, through six complete games, and tossed two shutouts one other note before we get rolling here and and this is all personal conjecture you know this is personal opinion the famous Joe Jackson versus Ed Roush this of course like I said, is personal opinion but do you think the reputation of shoeless Joe has been greatly enhanced? by the events of (laughs) 1919 and because he was banned for life as opposed to your grandfather. And here's why I ask. Joe had a career batting average that was, you know, without a doubt, higher than Ed's, 356 to 323. But Ed had 68 home runs to Joe's 54. Ed stole 268 bases to Joe's 202. Ed had 981 RBI to Joe's 792. Yeah, Joe had a higher OPS and a higher slugging percentage, but my point is this. Ed Roush is not nearly as well known as Joe Jackson. Yet his numbers are very comparable. How do you think the 1919 World Series, or did the 1919 World Series, enhance Joe Jackson's reputation?
1: Well, you did your homework, didn't you, Warren? <laughs> that's, what, that, that's, that's the whole point, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes. You ask for my opinion. Of course, I agree with you. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, it's a pretty logical, Buck Weaver and all kinds of people became a lot more famous than they might have ever been. Mm-hmm. And Joe didn't have all the years that Granddad did. Mm-hmm. So that's unfair, too.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you wrote this book several years back, and you know I- I'm not here to try and test your memory of everything you wrote. And by the way, your book, um, Red Legs and... And the, and the Black Sox is a terrific book. And, you know, kudos to you that the second half of the book in particular might be made into a movie. And I love that because it's going to approach the 1919 World Series, I would guess, from the Reds' point of view. And that yeah. story is not a story that has been told all that often or or very in depth. But what I wanted to really concentrate today is on your granddad and, and his career. And like I said, we'll touch upon the 1919 series. And again, I'm not testing your, your memory and everything you wrote, but there are some people in the book who, whom, whom you cover. And I think we should mention their name up front and maybe you could just say a thing or two about them. Uh, to familiarize our listeners with them, so if their names do come up again later on they 'll know who they are and i okay. like i 'd like to start with bill phillips
1: oh bill Phillips
0: whoa bill Phillips <laughs> uh, the man- his first manager I believe
1: he really he really learned from him and cared about him, and he was the manager that um that granddad and his father both met. Mhm. His father I think didn't meet the later the later more famous managers because of course he passed away. Mhm. But he did know Bill Phillips and apparently he was really a good leader of men.
2: Mhm. He mm-hmm.
1: encouraged these young guys which granddad was what was he 1920. Mhm. And really helped him in the beginning years.
0: Mm -hmm. How about Gary Herman?
1: Well, of course he knew Gary Herman. That was his boss. (laughs) That that was the owner of the Cincinnati Reds. So, Mm -hmm. of course he knew him. And I don't remember him talking much about him. You know, players didn't really mix with the owners. And, of course, Gary Herman is famous for being this big fat German guy in Cincinnati who uh, created pigs in a blanket and uh, sausages of all sorts and uh, always for fleshmen and his wealthy uh, supporters, but never for his players.
0: Okay. How about Harry Sinclair? Oh,
1: there's a story. That's a fabulous story.
0: Um, Not
1: much of which I heard from Granddad. Mm -hmm. I mean, Harry Sinclair bought uh, Granddad's team, the Hoosiers, from the Federal League, which is a very, very famous moment in baseball. Some of your more esoteric uh, students of baseball may be familiar with Federal League, but very few people are which was an outlaw league in the, uh, what, 1913 to 16 or Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And Harry Sinclair bought Granddad's team and took them to New Jersey. But the big thing about Sinclair was he very much wanted to be um, a mogul. (laughs) And he very much wanted to be in New York and kind of mix with the New York um, up the up guys, and he couldn't quite make it. He made it to New Jersey, and that was it with Granddad's team. And then he got involved in the Teapot scandal and all of that.
0: The Teapot scandal, in short, involved the administration of President Warren G. Harding, namely Albert Bacon Fall, the Secretary of the Interior who accepted bribes from oil companies for land without competitive bids. The company that leased the property was the Sinclair Oil Corporation, which was founded by Harry Sinclair. As for the Federal League, it debuted in 1913 and aimed to be a third league to compete with the National League and the American League. But the NL and AL never accepted the Federal League as a real threat and, to the best of their ability, they ignored the Federal League. After three years, it disbanded. The 1913 and 1914 champions were the Indianapolis Hoosiers and they were managed by Bill Phillips. The 1915 champions were the Chicago Whales and they were managed by Joe Tinker. That's Joe Tinker of the famous Tinker to Evers to Chance double play combination. How about Pat Moran? Oh, Pat Moran.
1: Uh, I would bet that, um, and I'm pretty sure I remember from conversations of which I had so many with Granddad that Pat Moran was The person he thought was the best manager that he ever worked under. I mean, he loved Bill Phillips because he was his first guy. You know, his first Mm -hmm. love in essence. Mm -hmm. But Pat Moran was just, he would say it was like he had eyes in the back of his head. He knew what was going on. He knew how the players felt. He didn't really ever mix with us, but he knew all about everything.
0: Okay. And
1: now That's here, a good manager.
0: Yeah, a really good manager and you know, who lost his life way too soon. Um here's a That's right. Here here's a name for you. This is a big name in this story. Jimmy Widmeyer. <laughs> isn't he great. That's I mean,
1: there should be a whole book and a whole movie just about Jimmy Widmeyer. Oh,
0: I think so. I definitely I mean, think isn't
1: so. Isn't he an incredible character? He really is. And I interviewed some of his family members and people who had known him. And, wow, when I, and I just, I was so amazed by him. He was this little scrappy kid that was just going to, one of 10 children that was going to make it, period. And, you know, crawled his way from Covington, Kentucky, which was the dregs of that particular area, into Cincinnati and made his name selling newspapers and he he was just um he was the Donald Trump of his time, Warren. <laughs> he really was. Wow. You know, that's a he big was statement. able to he was he was able to convince people that um, they should talk to him and and that he was a person of quality and he was able to get them to give him all kinds of tips to buy stocks. That's why he was called the million dollar newsboy. He made a million dollars on the stock market. And the only way he did it was because he sold his newspapers um, on Vine Street in Cincinnati. And he, all the financial guys bought one from him every morning. Hmm. And he'd say, hey, what do you think about Montgomery Wards? And, you know, they'd tell him.
2: Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he'd
1: invest $5, $8. <laughs>
2: and he was.
1: Yeah, he was a h- wonderful hustler. He's a fabulous personality, he really is. Mm-hmm. All right, and of so, course, yeah, go he, ahead. He loved my granddad. He mm-hmm. loved Ed Roush.
0: Right, sure. I mean, v- very much comes out in the story that way. Let's let's go back to the beginning here. I think that one of the more unique things about Ed Roush was the fact that he was ambidextrous you oh, yeah? would think that might come with some advantages but it didn't how did being ambidextrous affect ed when he first made it to the majors i think people looked at him funny and 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 they didn't they didn't let him play that's kind of
1: fair not fair actually I mean, he, he's a young kid, and they they think he's really a right-hander who's playing left-handed, and it's really the opposite of that. And I mean, I grew up with him. He's a left-hander, period. Mm-hmm. But I think he had to try to balance that because that's what they were saying about him and wanted him to be. I mean, when we're 18, 19 years old, we can do anything.
0: <laughs> Don't I know it. I got two kids that I'll tell you that every day. <laughs> um, but but I thought in reading the book and in your story about Ed, your granddad, I just got this feeling that he didn't get a fair shake in his first attempt to make it to the majors.
1: Well, he had a cup of coffee with uh, the White Sox, and he d- he was too young. I mean, he didn't do well. He was overpowered by all these people, and he didn't get a shot. I mean, they sent him back to Lincoln, and you know he he didn't really he didn't really get <laughs> a chance there. He was he was too immature. You know, you got to pick the player at the right time.
0: He starts his career with the White Sox. Ultimately, he gets sent down to the minors, Lincoln, Nebraska. Right, Lincoln, and then. He oh, well, he left. Yeah, he left, and then ultimately he, just, he didn't even stay. Right, he didn't like in being Lincoln. There. Right, he, didn't he like, hated it. Yeah, so he just got on a train and went home, and then. He ends up in the Federal League. Now, the in Federal, the Federal League, right. that's right. This, new, that's this right. new league, this third league that's going to try and compete with the American and National League. So let's stick with that for a while.
1: First, Well, they had a lot of money. I mean, they had the opportunity to do that. They really did. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a number of businessmen who put together that third league. Mm-hmm. But there were more powerful businessmen on the, in the other two.
0: But the Federal League was willing to hand out salaries, and in reality, they handed out some pretty large salaries, which raised the salaries in the American and National League, too. Um, how did the Federal League ultimately find Ed, and, and who did Ed sign with? Well, he signed
1: with Indianapolis. That's how we met Bill Phillips. Mm -hmm. So he signed with Indianapolis.
0: Okay. And then the Federal League was only around for two years. What happened? No, three years. Oh, three years? It was 1913 to 16. Okay. So the Federal League... And he didn't
1: come in in the first year. Came in at the end of the first year. So he was there two years. He was there for the second year when Indianapolis won the federal league pennant Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: they very much wanted to play against the other two leagues, but they wouldn't let them. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I mean, they wanted to make it a real world series, but they wouldn't let them. Mm -hmm. They were afraid they'd be beaten.
0: (laughs) That wouldn't be good.
1: Nope. One of the other And that, that that's when Sinclair bought the Indianapolis team and took them to New Jersey.
0: Right. They went to Newark and then ultimately the Federal League, you know, runs into financial difficulties, the Federal League folds up, and somehow, some way, Sinclair becomes like an agent and he starts negotiating contracts on behalf of federal league players to get them signed with the major league baseball team and one of the players that harry worked with to get him signed and it happened long after a lot of the other players signed was ed why did it take so long to get ed signed and where did ed end up
1: The person that helped him get signed, as you say it, is Germany Schaefer. Was Germany Schaefer who was the old timer who knew all the Federal League guys and who was very close with McGraw and told him to grab this young guy, he was good.
0: What kind of ball player was Ed? What were his strengths and what were his weaknesses?
1: Well, he was a slugger. I mean he was an incredible hitter, of course. And he played a heck of an outfield. I mean, that's from, that's from his farm days of throwing the ball over the barn and running around catching it.
0: After his federal days were over with Indy, he did get to his dream team at that time, the New York Giants, and he got to play for John McGraw. And as is the case on so many occasions – dream jobs are not always what they're cracked up to be. And what I mean by that is, in your book or the way you wrote it, it was as if this is the place where Ed wanted to go. He wanted to be and play with and play for John McGraw. And that relationship quickly soured. Why? Why did it sour? What soured was, Granddad,
1: you know, was a, a German Irish man from the Midwest, and he didn't like people swearing at him because he was also religious to some degree, and he didn't like the way McGraw treated his men.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: McGraw would would um, march up and down in front of the um, bench and tell them all off and swear and say awful words. And he just, he didn't like that at all. And he certainly didn't like him telling him which bat to use, which is where it all blew up.
0: Ed used a heavy bat, 48 ounce. uh, That's right. Yeah. 48 ounce bat. That's a heavy bat. Well, the, the relationship soured and ultimately Ed was shipped to Cincinnati and, um, But McGraw saw something in him and let Cincinnati know that they were getting somebody really good. So McGraw did, you know, respect the talents of Ed Roush. He
1: did. That's right. He did. And he's the one who told Christy Matheson, who would become... Ed's manager, he and McKechnie, as they went to Cincinnati, told him to use Ed and put him in the outfield and that he'd, he'd make a, a winning outfield for him. So he did. Mm-hmm. That was Christie.
0: Yep, yep. And now here's another name, a name that was a big name during Ed's career and a name of a player who Ed was also told to be very wary of. Hal Chase.
1: Oh no, are you going to say Hal Chase? Yeah, they oh, were right. God. Tell us
0: about yeah. Hal. Tell us about Hal.
1: Because yeah, I've he, got was, whole he was on a old captain here. He was a good, good ball, ball for player, him.
0: <laughs> but, he, but he was a good ball
1: player. Oh yes, he was. He was fabulous first baseman. Mm-hmm. He was. He just was a crook. Period.
0: Interestingly, All the players though, knew yeah, it. Yeah. He was also the guy who sort of introduced Ed to Jimmy Widmeyer. I'm not sure if it was
1: Hal himself, but it was the players on the team, so I'm not sure it could have been Hal. Certainly, because Jimmy was Jimmy walked the line between mm-hmm. uh, the upstanding citizens and those from uh, more of the remote areas. Mm. So, yeah. Probably was Hal.
0: Okay, here's where things get a little convoluted. Hal Chase played for the Reds from nineteen sixteen through nineteen eighteen. He was actually a really good hitter. In fact, in nineteen sixteen, he led the National League with a 339 batting average of 184 hits. For his career, he hit 291 in average. 31 stolen bases a season. But he wasn't really on the up and up, and we'll get into more of that later in today's show. As for Ed, Hal, and Jimmy Widmeyer, in 1917, Ed wanted to buy his wife, Essie, a diamond ring. But he had no idea where to go or how to get one. He asked his teammates for help, and the one guy who Ed was told to be wary of, Hal Chase, introduced Ed to Jimmy Widmire. Ed, as it turns out, was a little wary of Jimmy as well. However, after meeting him on a few occasions, Ed grew to trust Jimmy, Ed Widmire delivered. He got the ring Ed wanted, and a long friendship between the two followed. Now, again, like we said earlier, a lot of Ed's career certainly revolves around the 1919 World Series, but how Chase might have actually been throwing games before the 1919 series. Do you believe that? Could you tell us a little oh, bit yeah. more? And
1: there, there are people who are better researchers than I who've written books about that and Yeah, in 1917
0: and 18, yes. Okay, Hal Chase. One of the most interesting characters in the history of baseball. So many of those who played with him and against him, guys like Babe Ruth, Ed Barrow, and Cy Young, all said that Hal was the best first baseman they had ever seen. But he is also regarded as as the most notoriously corrupt player in baseball history. One of his first managers, George Stallings of the New York Highlanders, accused Hal of laying down on his team. Later, another manager, Frank Chance, also accused Hal of not giving it his all. With the Reds in 1918, manager Christy Mathewson suspended Hal for offering bribes to teammates and opponents to influence games he bet on. In 1919 with the New York Giants, he and third baseman Heine Zimmerman were accused of attempting to bribe teammates as well. There were several other incidences throughout Hal's career where he tried to undermine management blackmail people away from the game and of course his role in the 1919 series where he was indicted as an alleged middleman in the fix he reportedly won forty thousand dollars the guy just wasn't an honest person and he eventually died penniless was ed any different from the other ball players during that period when it came to negotiating his contract at you know before oh, well, the start yeah, he's year.
1: famous for that. But before we leave Hal Chase, I remember Granddad said that that Cincinnati probably would have won the pennant in nineteen eighteen had it not been for Hal Chase. Yeah. And in particular for Hal Chase and Lee McGee, both of whom were throwing games. So it makes a difference. It does. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And, of course, the one thing the granddad did that was what he, his claim to fame in terms of his business acumen was he was a holdout for salary. Because in those days, you didn't have an agent. You didn't have any other way to affect what they paid you.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: There was no union. There wasn't anything like that. Mm Mm-hmm. So the only thing you could do if you didn't like what they were paying you was not to go.
0: Mm -hmm. And at that time, it was always a one-year contract. Yes. Until Ed signed a contract with Cincinnati for a couple of years after holding out. And I think Ed might actually be the first player to ever ask for a no trade clause in a contract, yes. and a
1: lot of that had to yeah. do with Max. I, I wish I knew that. If you could, if you could find that out, I'd love to know, Warren. You know, he is well known for that. He—that's one of the things he told Mr. Herman was that he didn't want to be traded. Mm-hmm. So, and that was in his contract. And of course, he lost that ability in '27 when he went back to McGraw
0: hmm Mm-hmm.
1: And then he got a three year contract.
0: Mm. With the Giants. Okay.
1: Um that, I'd love to know if that's true. I'm not sure it is. It may not be.
0: But it was not a usual thing at that time. No,
1: and players didn't really have a lot of ability to write their own course, you know, so it's possible it may be true.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, this came just as the 1917 season was, was on deck. And I would say that nineteen seventeen is really when Ed arrived on the national stage. Hey, I mean man. that's when yeah. he led the National League with a 341 batting average. Yeah. And something changed in his approach at the plate. And maybe that Ty Cobb Christy. helped. That I'm sorry? And and, and Christy brought Ty Cobb in during the preseason. Yes, and I think Cobb made a difference. Cobb was being arrested
1: and he was in big trouble so he just came down to the Reds for a few days. (laughs) But uh, He went drinking with them over at the Foshneider brewery and uh, you know, he, he, he was an incredible person and I think he advised Granddad as well and he did both men did affect his batting stance Apparently, he was going too far up in the box. I may not be saying that No,
0: right. you're right. He was he was standing too forward, like too close to the pitcher in, in the batter's box yeah. instead of staying and they told deeper. Him
2: to,
1: yeah, to back up or turn or something. I don't know. But they did make a difference, and he did admit that.
0: As far as Ty Cobb being in Cincinnati to avoid rest, I just don't know much about that. However, he was there, and Matthewson did ask him to stop by Redland Field and offer some pointers to young hitters like Roush. And Cobb really took a liking to Ed. As Susan wrote, Ed hung on every word. His eyes followed every movement, the grip of his hands on the bat, the total focus of his body on the ball flying toward him. Cobb didn't pull back. He had no fear. Ed listened, as Cobb explained, how to steal bases, one of his specialties. Ed would always remember and often repeat Cobb's ominous threat, infielders better get out of my way. When I'm on the run, that baseline is mine. It should be noted that Cobb was also a highly publicized holdout at salary time, another pattern Ed would emulate. Well, tough to argue with the results. It wouldn't be until 1928 that Ed would hit under 300 again. And it really paid dividends because, like we said, he wound up leading the National League with a 341 average. So, Well, the other part of that is he had
1: newly found confidence, Warren.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, he had a manager who believed in him and... Mm-hmm. You know, a team that he really he loved the guys in Cincinnati. I mean, he was a Southern Indiana guy.
0: Sure, and that's only ninety miles from. from yeah, home. so it wasn't like he had to
1: be in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> he was. He was where he was home. Mm-hmm. He loved it. Mm-hmm. And like- he, used, he used to walk up the hill to People's Corner and eat Grader's ice cream with his wife and my mother, his little girl. Mm -hmm. And that was so special because that the graders people only spoke German. And she's the one who invented French, French vanilla ice cream. Oh, wow. And they lived right there in their little ice cream shop. Mm. It's still there. Ah, I love the, It's so cool. When I did my research in Cincinnati, one of the reporters took me around. We looked at everything and it's really special.
0: Oh, I bet. I bet. So, <laughs> now he's 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 made a name for himself and here comes 1918 and boy, was that a tough year. First, as you well, that's mentioned, Hal Chase. Yeah. Yeah. The the Hal Chase episode and and then yeah. like today there was a pandemic in full flight. You had the Spanish flu, and that ultimately cost something like 50 million people their lives. World you war- know, I forgot yeah. that. That's yeah. right. Yeah. you right. World yeah. War One was going on. Not to mention the war. Yeah. Yep. And while Ed was not in the war, his manager, Christy Mathewson, didn't listen Ultimately, he lost his life due to the effects of mustard gas. You know, but that came yes. a couple of years later. Can you tell us a little more about 1918? The challenges that Ed faced, the race with Zach Wheat for the batting title. Well, and that's, and, and, that's, and and and, and the he should have won it. He should have
1: yeah. been a triple a triple winner for the National League Championship. He should have easily. But what happened was his father. In southern Indiana, they had a farm, a dairy farm, and to make additional income, his father worked for the telephone company, which, of course, was new and unsophisticated, and um, he used to climb telephone poles without a belt of any sort, if you can imagine.
0: No, I can't.
1: And he fell off the darn telephone pole and broke his neck. And he lived for, I think, five days, maybe six. I can't remember. But it was in the last two weeks of granddad's season. And, of course, the minute he found out, he went back to Indiana, and he missed all of those games. And Zach, weed only beat him by, what, two points or something.
0: I don't even know if it was that much. And there's controversy around that because – Yes. There was a game in which Ed had two hits. He went two for three, but the results of that game were thrown out because that's right. Because of all things, um, and that
1: favored wheat.
0: That's yeah, right. Yeah, and it was because of a a juggling catch that was protested. Ironically, a juggling catch by Ed, and the game was ultimately replayed. Winning a batting title 3 years in a row is obviously an incredible accomplishment. Roush won the title in 1917 hitting 341. He also won it in 1919 hitting 321. In 1918 he hit 333 while Zack Wheat of the Dodgers hit 335, and therein lies the controversy. It turns out that in 1918, if a game was protested and the protest was won, all of the stats from that game were thrown out. In 1918, two games were protested that affected the batting race. On April 29th, Roush made a circus-like catch against the Cardinals, and after falling to his knees, the ball popped out of his glove, and he grabbed it again before it hit the ground. The umpire, Hank O'Day, ruled that the runner on third base was out because he left for home. Cardinals manager Jack Hendricks protested the call because Roush had only momentarily held the ball. The Cardinals won the protest and the game was thrown out and Ed lost two hits that day. Now on June 3rd, the Cardinals beat the Dodgers 15-12 and that game was protested by the Dodgers. Brooklyn won the protest and Wheat's 0 for 5 performance was tossed. Therefore, by virtue of those two games, Roush would have hit 334 and Wheat would have hit 330 to give Ed the title, and he would have wound up with three batting championships in a row.
1: You are so right, Warren. That's correct. And the other infuriating part is I think we beat him by, what, a year or two years into the Hall of Fame. (laughs) That's infuriating.
0: So here we go, 1919. What a year. For the first time since 1869, the Reds won the pennant. And they, yes, that's they, right. They really wrapped it up in August when they took four out of six from the Giants in the Polo Grounds. Yes, and, you're and, right. It's something I can't even imagine playing a doubleheader three days in a row. But that was oh, crazy. well. You know,
1: Granddad's favorite thing he used to say was um, when he, of course, in his later years, all the baseball was on television, and he would say, "Look at this." You know, this game is going to be three hours long. That's just crazy. No ball game should last more than an hour and a half. doesn't make any sense. Look at those guys out there. They're trying to look good for the camera. See the way they're walking around and preeming for the camera. That's all just theater. You know, he said, you shouldn't ever. It doesn't take more than an hour and a half to play a ball game. Mm-hmm. He said you you play a doubleheader in three hours. You're done. Wow. You go for a beer at four o'clock. You're done.
0: <laughs> it's a it's certainly a different time. That was a different time, and the game <laughs> is a lot different today. Y- y- you know what's really funny though about that that series where they took four out of six games. Um We talked about him before, Hal Chase, and ironically, he was a new acquisition for the Giants, and he bungled several plays that might have led to the Reds' four wins. I mean, Susan, what was going on here? First, he might have cost the Reds a pennant in 1918, and now he costs the Giants, possibly cost them a pennant, in 1919. I mean... You know, the most interesting
1: thing was, he was so good at it. I mean, Granddad would say, you couldn't catch him. He'd say, I I, I asked him all about how Chase, and he said, couldn't prove anything, Susan, you couldn't catch him. If you said something to him, he'd just smile and just look at you and walk away. Hmm. He, you you couldn't ever get him to talk about anything? He said Heine Groh used to say when they'd go out on the field, used to say to Chase, Well, you might as well tell me now how many errors am I gonna get today?
0: Uh-huh. Wow. Wow. Well, Hal Chase played the role of spoiler for quite a few teams and somehow, some way probably patted his pocket while doing it. I bet. You know, so the Reds take four out of six, and of course, like we said, it was against the Giants. How good did he must have felt, I don't know if he ever talked about it, how good he felt at beating the Giants in New York. John McGraw. I mean, this had to be some sort of immense pleasure for Ed Roush.
1: Yeah, I bet I bet it was. He he never said that, but it's got to be, yes, of course.
0: Well one of the other cool things about 1919 was once again he won the batting title, this time over Rogers Hornsby, 321 to 318.
1: Oh, and he said Hornsby, what who did Hornsby play for? I can't
0: remember. Cardinals.
1: I guess so. Anyway, he said that they would always inflate his home games so that he he would look better. (laughs) That's probably just silly,
0: but that's what he always said. Well, you know, had the Zach Wheat incident or Zach Wheat issue had not come about, Ed Roush would have won three straight batting championships. Well, nine. yeah, that's
1: what I said. Yeah, yeah, he would have been a triple triple winner.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's that's not yeah, a lot of guys have done that. Now, Christy Mathewson had been the manager of the Reds and he couldn't get them over the hump and that's when Pat Moran came in to replace Christy. Oh,
1: yeah, and he was Fabulous! Yeah,
0: he really got the most out of all his players, especially his granddad said
1: that Christie was really the best coach for the for the pitchers. That he was wonderful with the pitchers, but he didn't really know the other positions.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And where Moran was able to be more everyone's coach.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And then when Moran left, oh, who's the guy that came in? Hendricks. His name was Jack. I don't Jack- remember the first yeah, name. Jack yeah. Hendricks. Yeah, nothing's been
0: written about that either. Hmm.
1: Well, And the- that's one of the reasons Granddad was okay to go back to McGraw. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, we're gonna get there in a second. But one of the things you did write about in your book, Red Legs and Black Sox, was the fact that during the nineteen nineteen season, especially later on in the year there might have been some signs that something might be going on. Um, Can you try to, maybe you can recall and set this up for us, there were signs that there were some shady characters hanging out at Redland Field and around the team. And can you talk about that why no one ever sounded the alarm? Well, because
1: I think that gambling had already invaded baseball. It it wasn't brand new in 1919. It had been there for a while. And, you know, according to Granddad, there was this whole area of the grandstand. I can't remember which side it was. The left side, I think. I can't remember where the gamblers sat. And everybody knew that's where they were. And that had been true for a long time. It wasn't. It wasn't really anything new.
0: There were people hanging out in hotels. There were people hanging out at the ballpark. Yeah. And one of the guys that was noticing a lot of this was Jimmy Widmire.
1: And Oh, yeah. Well, he was... He was walking between the, the two countries. <laughs> I mean, he, he was kind of part of the, the bad guys, too, you know? Mm-hmm. The, and part of, part of the bad guys were what they called the gentleman pikers, like the Mowbray guy, the lumberman, the wealthy guys in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. you know, who were part of the, what was it called? The gentleman's club or something.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway,
1: they did a lot of gambling themselves. Mm-hmm. And they would talk to these low lives just to get the tips
0: and and just like Jimmy doing horse racing and Jimmy was so clever he got himself he got himself a hotel room um next to where a lot of people were were talking about how to throw games or or you know what they were going to do and he put a glass to the wall to listen in on conversation so he was <laughs> he was he was he was really uh getting an inside uh an inside scoop there oh he was smart as a whip
1: that's going to be a great scene in the movie isn't it <laughs> it
0: sure is but here's something about that movie when we look back and we sort of touch upon this uh, you know early on when we look back at the 1919 world series Really, when anyone discusses it, it's usually approached from the Chicago side of the story. Yeah, of course. Very rarely. Sure. Really, yeah, it's, it's hardly ever discussed from the Cincinnati side. Why is this? Especially considering that the Reds might have been approached first to throw the series.
1: I don't know if they were approached first. I, I don't know that. But I'm sure they were evaluated along with the other team. And one of the things that surprised me in in my research was that people were betting not on the whole series, but game to game. So they would bet on Mm -hmm. game two, thinking it would be for the Reds.
2: Mm -hmm. The
1: other team, they'd vote maybe the next game. Mm Mm-hmm. So it it was done game to game. I I always thought it was done the whole series,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. Sure. And and the other interesting thing was, you know, we said Ed had a great year. He won the batting title. He hit three twenty one but he did not perform well in that series, which, by the way, was not a best-of-seven. It was a best-of-nine, so it was the first team to win five. He felt a lot of pressure in that series, and that's because he had an inkling of what was going on, and by all accounts, that really affected him at the plate. But after he finally told his wife, your grandmother, Essie, and said something to his teammates, the pressure was off, and he had his best game at the plate in that eighth and final game, the clinching game for the Reds. You wrote about that. You wrote about yes. how he he finally let it all out. Can you tell us what he did? Yeah, he should have done
1: that earlier. Yeah. And, of course, that's all because Jimmy Widmire was – keeping him apprised as he heard things because Jimmy Woodmire really tried to be a good friend to grandfather. I believe he really did. He, I think he really adored and, and worshiped him as a hero. And he really tried to tell him the truth all the way along. And granddad just didn't want to hear it. I mean, he didn't want to believe that that was happening. And he certainly didn't want to believe that his own team was doing that. Mm-hmm. That bothered him more than anything.
0: And he he flat out, in front of the whole team, asked one of the pitchers, I believe his name was Hod Eller, if you right. were, are you throwing the games? And Hod's like, Dir- no, Dir- he
1: didn't. Uh, Pat Moran did. Oh, Pat Moran did. What okay. happened was, um, Granddad said, he finally confessed to, before they started the game in the locker room, that he had heard that some of the Reds themselves were trying to throw games now. And he wasn't going to go out there and run himself to death if other people were trying to lose. So he wanted to know right now, is that happening? And nobody said anything. And Pat Moran said, well, our starting pitchers, you had have you been offered anything to throw game? And Hadeller said, yes. This guy came, followed me up on the elevator last night at the hotel and offered me, held up $5,000 bills and said there were five more like this if I'd throw tomorrow, today.
0: And that was a lot
1: of money back then. And, well, yeah, it was more than they were making for the year. (laughs) A lot of them. And he said, he said, no, I, you know, get out of my face. I'm going to punch you in the nose or something like that. But he would not have done that. He was a Southern Indiana boy, too. Mm -hmm. And grandfather really had faith in all his teammates, but he wanted to be sure because Jimmy Widmire had made him think differently. And of course, he had played with Hal Chase. So... (laughs) Hmm. anything was possible
0: yep now the reds win that series it's the one time that that ed makes it to the series they win but of course his career did not stop in 1919. I mean that was really only his about his uh uh sixth full season in the major leagues and he went on to play another 11 years. You're right. With yeah. one year off and he played at such a high level. In 1920 he hit 339. In 1923 he hit 351 and he led the National League in doubles with 41. In 1929 he hit 324. With the Giants. So, why did the Giants, or why did the Reds, trade Ed back to the Giants in 1927, and how did he and McGraw get along at that point?
1: Well, McGraw, apparently, (laughs) once he traded him in, what was it, 1917, uh, or was it sixteen? It was. Not,
0: it was. It was in the middle of the sixteen season.
1: Yeah, I think it was sixteen in the middle of that summer. And once he traded him, as Roush's career grew and he became famous, McGraw, the the uh, newspaper guys would say that was one of McGraw's mistakes in his life. You know, <clears throat> so he. He felt like that had been one of his failures, so all those years he tried to get rash back because he always wanted the best players for him. And finally, he was able to offer enough money in 27, uh, Granddad signed this huge contract for seventy what was it seventy seven seventy eight thousand mm-hmm. dollars for mm-hmm. three years. It was a three-year contract but it was still huge. I think he was the highest paid in the National League. Uh-huh. The American League had always paid better. So, McGraw spent a lot of money getting him back and didn't really didn't get him in his best years.
0: But he still hit for, him. I mean, even as late as 29 ed hit three twenty four in a hundred and fifteen games, and you know he had five hundred at bats or or played appearances here's Here's an interesting thing. I think that his penchant for holding out really burned him though after the twenty nine season because he didn't play in nineteen thirty did he
1: No, he held out the whole year. <laughs> He went back and played for, what was his name, Er, Erwin Wheel? What was his name? (laughs) Who Uh, was the guy who bought the Reds? I can't remember. In 31, I think.
0: Yeah, he went back to the Reds in
1: 31. Yeah, and he played, and he was way over the hill, and it wasn't the right thing to do, but that's okay. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm, Right, and, you know, they basically, after the 1930 season, the Giants had waived. Ed and the Reds picked him up for one last cup of coffee. And like you said, he hit he 271, respectable, but certainly not. Well, he
1: always said that the Hall of Fame got his statistics wrong, that his lifetime average was 325, and that they took two points off of him from the Federal League. He was furious about it.
0: <laughs> Interesting. Well, who knows? Yeah, but. He is a Hall of Famer, and, and, you know, that is such an important Well, now, an important and I believe note. he
1: would have been a Hall of Famer much earlier if he had been willing to be a coach and a manager.
2: hmm
0: mm-hmm.
1: And he just wanted no part of that, Warren.
0: Yeah, so what was life like for him after his playing days were over? Well,
1: even, you know, even in the late 20s, he could have done some coaching like Hornsby. And he just didn't want any part of it. He said, I'm, I'm not going to tell other players what to do. I'm not going to do it.
0: Well, how much of that also might've had to do with your grandmother, Essie? I mean, from everything I read, I mean, that was one of those true love affairs.
1: It was. Thank you. It was, it could have been. Yes. And he wanted to go home and be in Indiana with her and, be the mayor of the little town and go down and live in their little trailer in Florida. And yeah, he did. He wanted to earn finally, you know, I mean, live the way he had earned it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Susan, in the end, when all is said and done, how should your grandfather, Ed Rausch, when it comes to baseball
1: be remembered? Golly, that's hard. Um, well, probably for tenacity, he always said that the reason he played ball was because he didn't want to have to go to the, go to the goddamn coal mine. <laughs> I don't blame and him. If he had stayed, I mean, I can't believe these guys want to do that. He said that was the worst thing in the world. And if he had not excelled in some other way, that's how he would have spent his
0: life. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, he had a wonderful life, a terrific career, a Hall of Fame career. He he won a World (laughs) Series. He played during, you know, some of the most legendary times, and he was involved in probably the most talked about or famous World Series for the wrong reason, the 1919 World Series. (laughs) And that is something that you wrote deeply about or a lot about in your book, Red Legs and Black Sox. And now they're turning that into a movie. That's got to be so exciting for you.
1: Well, it is. I just wish you were here to see it. I do. You know, we added up all the, all the contracts, all the, and we've got some of the contracts, all mm-hmm. the money he made in his life. And he had, I think, something like maybe five, um, oh, what are they called when, they, when they, are, they represent a company and make, you know. Sponsorships? For, yeah, endorsements. Endorsements. He had yeah, maybe five endorsements in his whole life. They didn't do that in those days. Mm. And I think we figured out he made about $280,000
0: in <laughs> so, 18 years. Some guys make that pitching one inning. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? Yeah. And believe it or not, my family is still living on his money.
0: Wow. He because he went back
1: to this little town in Indiana, lived you know, lived okay, but didn't spend big money doing anything. Mm-hmm. Enjoyed his life and saved his money and bought stock like crazy.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's
1: awesome. He didn't go to New York like some of them did and try to throw his money around be a big shot.
0: Well, Susan, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. You've been a terrific guest. And, oh, thank you. Uh, and um, yeah, thank, thanks again for joining me. And I can't wait till that movie comes out.
1: Well, I've enjoyed talking to you, Warren. I really have. You you know your stuff, and I appreciate that because I've done some interviews where they didn't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some facts get mixed up a little, but I guess that's okay, right? Yeah, right. Of course. All right. Well, you have you have a pleasant evening. You too, guys. It's funny how a single event can affect the career, good or bad, of a player. And in the case of the 1919 World Series, several players became much better known. And basically, they were all from the White Sox, the team that had thrown the series. The book that Susan wrote, Red Legs and Black Sox, Ed Roush and the Untold Story of the 1919 World Series, is really a wonderful account of not only Ed's career but the 1919 World Series from the perspective of the Reds, a story that's very rarely told. I hope that movie gets made. Oh, I wanted to hit upon the Reds' manager of that time, Pat Moran, as well. As Susan noted, the players loved him. Pat first managed in 1915 with the Philadelphia Phillies, and he skippered them to the 1915 National League pennant Going 90 and 62. He followed that by going 91 and 62 in 1916 and 87 and 65 in 1917. In 1918, he and the Phillies fell on hard times and Pat was let go when the team fell to 55 and 68. But he wasn't out of baseball for long. And in 1919, Cincinnati hired him, and obviously, the Reds won the series. Pat followed the 1919 season with 82 wins in 1920, a poor showing in 1921 with 70 wins, but he rebounded with 86 in 1922 and 91 in 1923. Sadly, he passed away prior to the 1924 season. As for Ed, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1962, the capper on a wonderful career that spanned 18 seasons. I'd like to thank Susan for joining us today on Sports Forgotten Heroes. And if you get a chance, check out her book, Red Legs and Black Sox, Ed Roush, and the Untold Story of the 1919 World Series. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, a little something different. We're going to talk with former Major League pitcher Skip Lockwood. During the mid-1970s, Lockwood was closing out games for my favorite team, the New York Mets. So he was sort of a hero of mine, and he has some wonderful stories to tell. Again, that's next time. For now, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.